0: your boy, and welcome to episode 85 of the podcast. This is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Everywhere you find good podcasts, you'll find this one. Take a minute. Rate and review us. Give, I, just punch, <laughs> I just punch the mic. Oh, rate and review us. Give us five stars. Type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and uh, why others will also. And if you can think of one person in your life who would like the show, send them your favorite episode. Also, video podcast now available at thisismpod.com. That's thisismpod.com. You'll see the latest posts there. Watch the video. You can click through, subscribe on our YouTube channel, all that good stuff. (sighs) Did you miss me? Did you miss me? It's been two weeks now. I'm sorry I didn't post uh, our last episode. That was not something that I saw coming. Uh, I've just been swamped with stuff. Normally I record these on Sunday. Today is Sunday. Uh, I finally have some time to actually do this week's episode. I debated whether or not I would, um, but I figured if I let myself get two weeks behind, then I may check out of this podcast altogether. So I'm sorry you didn't see an episode last week. Uh, thankfully, I heard from you know probably half a dozen people, some, of, uh, some friends, some strangers, people asking where the podcast was. So that is meaningful. It lets me know that people uh, are looking forward to it. Um Or at least have their head on a swivel for it. I don't know how much they're looking forward to it, but people notice when I'm not around so um that is validating. I'm sorry um that you didn't hear from me, not that that's the end of your world um but I do look at this podcast as a commitment uh it's something that I promised myself that I would do, and regardless of what the future is, regardless of what happens, whether or not this continues past episode one hundred, which was the uh the pledge I made to myself when I started this, um I want to finish strong and um, you know, I don't know. I, w- I won't provide too much of a meta commentary on the podcast, but, um, um, but it did bring up something for me that comes up, you know, I can't remember the last thing that this happened with, but, you know, some people are, what do they call them? 75 percenters. I guess I'm thinking of this analogy that came up in this old Adam Carolla, uh, Adam Corolla movie called The Hammer, which is, you know, somebody said, oh, you're one of these 75 percenters you know, you give 75%, but you never give a hundred percent. And, uh, Adam Kroll's retort at that point is actually, I am a 60 percenter who's giving you an extra 15% or something like that. Um, I would say in most of my life, that was probably something that, um, applied to me. You know, I sort of traded on talent. I was kind of a bright kid and, um, I'm kind of oversimplifying here, but, um, You know, I just didn't really fully apply myself to things. And um, I don't want to go into all the reasons that might be the case, but um, especially in my adult life, I look at the things I give my time to and I try to be more mindful about how I complete things. And I think, especially as I've returned to school, you know, that was an opportunity for me to wipe the slate clean. Um, You know, especially coming off of what I, at least at the time I was leaving, it felt like a failed creative career. I think I explicitly or implicitly, or whatever the case is, I, I told myself that if I was going to go back to school, I had to i don't know give it my all sounds like a cliche, but i I told myself that i I really wanted to to prove to myself that I could be a good student, and uh, of course, I think at the time I was reflecting on my earlier academic career, which was not stellar and you know, even though I have called myself smart for a lot of my life, um, considered myself pretty bright. Um, I think I always felt a l- I always felt a little insecure that I didn't have the academic standing to demonstrate that. Or maybe I had two thoughts about it. You know, I think on some level, I had a certain amount of pride that I was as relatively intelligent as I was without being educated. Um, I think in that way, it felt more genuine, if that makes sense. I mean, I met a lot of people who have the pedigree of an education, but don't strike me as very smart, if that makes sense. So I don't know. I, I, I guess I felt like, you know, they talk about street smarts and book smarts and I'm not saying I'm too street smart, but I guess I felt like my intelligence was kind of earned, you know? Um, it wasn't just something that I paid for. And yet, actually, as I've returned to school, though, the fact that I've been able able to perform well academically and get good grades, uh, and even get get into the school that I applied to, um, have been pretty validating. And I think, actually, this is interesting. I hadn't correlated these two, but I think the reason I've been so wrapped up in my schoolwork is because, you know, it's just community college. But this this last semester has been the hardest semester I've had at school so far. And I think it's partly the course material. Uh, ASL is actually relatively easy for me. It's just like, uh, it's not like other languages where, you know, you have to do a lot of memorization and reading. And it's just, you exercise a different part part of your brain. Because for me, I'm a very visual learner. Maybe it's being a creative person. But ASL is interesting because, you know, to learn the language, it has to be demonstrated to you. It's not just something you read. It's not just something you hear. It's visually engaging and so for me it's very easy to learn because I see the sign you know grammar and those types of things that maybe take a little more work but I can see a sign and as long as I incorporate it or use it in that moment, I remember it very easily so ASL is actually for me is probably the perfect language for me to study if I was able to uh, if that sort of given the scope of what I want to study, if ASL was a language requirement that fulfilled that, I would still pursue it. I think ASL is something that if I ever come back to later in life, um, I can do pretty well. But why am I going into this? Oh, this has been a difficult semester for me. And uh, I think part of it is math. You know, I'm taking calculus, which, I don't know, maybe you're very skilled at math, and that's very easy for you. But I think for myself and for many people, calculus is challenging. And so uh, if I am going to get an A in the class... Um, you know, I have to do a a substantial amount of work to understand the information. And then secondly, I've sort of griped about the psychology class that I'm taking this semester. It's a research methods class and I'm not very fond of the teacher. I think he happens to, you know, I'm not one of these like blame the teacher sort of people. I mean, if you go back to previous episodes, I've had a number of chemistry teachers who I've griped about, or actually I should say other people have griped about, but I've sort of defended you know, they're very challenging teachers and they ask a lot of their students, but that, that doesn't make them bad teachers. Um, you know, part of your job as a student, I think, is to look at your teacher and understand their teaching style. And I think actually, I mean, part of being a good student, but I think a good employee and just a good person in general is looking at your supervisor, looking at the person who's going to give you a grade or sign your check or whatever the case may be, the person who has sway over you. And being able to evaluate what they want from you, what are they asking from you, and fulfilling that. And if that's not amenable to you, in most cases, not all the time, I suppose, but in many cases, you have the option of going somewhere else. Um, obviously, there are some qualifications to that, but I'm, pain- I'm, pain- I'm painting with a broad brush here. But the point is, is that um, I'm not the type of person who just sort of like blames the teacher, right? The the teacher I have now is a genuinely bad teacher, and I think given his personality and his teaching style, for lack of a better word, uh, actually does a disservice for people. So, I feel a little, I feel like my grades this semester are, are more uncertain than they've ever been, and so I've, I've tried to, I feel like there's some, there's a, there's, there's a chance variable at play here. Um, you know, my, my, my psych teacher in particular is not very predictable, and so, I guess I'm just trying to do everything I can to, to do what I can, you know? And uh, it's taken up a lot of my time, uh, more than any other semester. And so, um, I guess this is a long-winded way of apologizing and say, if I felt I had the time to do the podcast last week, I would have done it. And, uh, and frankly, I, when people reached out to me, I said, you know, at some point this week, I'll get to it. I sort, I sort of anticipated that by Wednesday, I would have recorded... Uh, what should have been episode 85 last week, and that today I would be recording episode 86. But the truth is, I just haven't had time. Um. (laughs) And I don't know, sometimes you feel like these things are sent to sort of try you. Uh, Maybe this is life in general, but the whole last week has just been a parade of like stressors, I feel like in every aspect of my life. And I think when I talk about this with my girlfriend, she thinks I'm like a sort of a Scrooge or... A malcontent, or I don't know what the word, I don't know what she would say, but I feel like in every corner of my life, whether it's work or school, you know, I, I am sort of surrounded by people who, from my perspective, are looking for every excuse not to do the work that they're being asked to do. And, you know, you'd have to ask a teacher, you'd have to probably ask somebody else who's been in a situation like this, but. I guess I, I'm hearing from so many people like, oh, I had a family, a very nondescript family emergency, or this thing came up and, and they're sort of trading on my, my sympathy to just like not really pursue the issue. And like, especially my work is a very, like, um, you know, I don't want to well, I can't think of the word. It's a very feelings-based line of work, right? Working in a behavioral health or mental health services or whatever. It's a very, um, you know I don't know we we trust what people articulate about their feelings and their capacity and yada yada yada, and try to be super sensitive and stuff and you know on the one hand, I value all those things, and yet I'm not convinced at all that uh people don't uh trade on other people's sympathy to get what they want or um or maybe what I'm saying is is when we look at people who are uh, you know lazy, the sort of pejorative term is lazy um I think people think they're very evolved when they sort of try to look deeper into people's behavior and understand what's motivating them. And while I think that's a good impulse, I I still don't think that that excuses behavior. Like, you know, there are many people who can make a commitment, whether it's to a group project or to a volunteer commitment or whatever the case may be, and legitimate things do come up, you know, that mean people can't fulfill their obligations. Um, but that's life. You know, people ultimately have to take responsibility for themselves. And, and actually, I feel like I'm being very um, obtuse here. And, and you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, but I've had a lot of people tell me why they can't do X, Y, or Z. And as a consequence of that, I have to pick up the responsibility. And so, um, I just feel like I've been stressed to the max. There's a lot of practical timeline things about admissions, which is if you've gone to school, you probably know the rigmarole, it's, you know, I've already provided transcripts, but now I have to get all the official transcripts mailed in and trying to interact with all these um, separate institutions is a nightmare. Every single school, uh, especially now that everybody's shelter in place, the process of contacting admissions and trying to get transcripts over to people is a fucking nightmare. Um, everything's done via email. Nobody's in the office. Nobody returns calls. Every time you call any institution you hit this like phone tree and you get triage and you get passed around to different departments and everybody's telling you that you need to talk to somebody different or log into this website and create a profile. But then every website doesn't work. You know, every portal you try to log into, there's a server error or can't find this. Or, um, I mean, it's like if you've ever tried to navigate your DMV website or some governmental website, the most critical <laughs> websites never seem to work. They all look like they're from 25 years ago and they're just not, they just, they don't function. It's like, can't we get the guy who designed the website for PayPal to, to, to build the government website? And I try to think, why, why is that the case? You know, for the most part, I think it's probably because there's no, like when you look at the DMV or the post office or all these other places, the reason they continue to suck is because you're not going to, you have no other choice. You have to deal with them. It's not a competitive market. The DMV is the DMV. If you need your driver's license and the website doesn't work, they don't give a shit. Not really. I mean, they'd like it to work On some level, the headache gets absorbed somewhere else. But it's not like you're going to go to the competing DMV, right? You're just going to deal with it. There's no incentive. Um... But well, and I guess schools, I guess it's like, you know, especially if the school has clout, they're like, they don't really give a shit. You want to go there, you're going to deal with the hassle. So anyway, I don't know. I just feel like I've been stressed to the max. I guess I think about, I'm trying to figure out how to talk about this, but... I think as I've gotten older, I've had to learn how to be an advocate for myself. You know, my girlfriend is very timid. She's a very kind and 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 good person. And, um, you know, I don't think it's always this way, but she also happens to be kind of meek and soft-spoken. And, uh, you know, there's been times where I've had to hear her interact with bureaucracies, for lack of a better word. It, it could be she needs to make a complaint with Amazon or some merchant that she worked with or whatever. And it's very easy for people who are kind of to put up a resistance and kind of give her a hard time. And it's it's easy for people like that to shy away. They're sort of conflict avoidant. And I consider myself someone who's kind of conflict avoidant, and or at least have been for most of my life. And it's been a skill that I've had to learn, which is to push back and advocate for myself. And trust my judgment, and know that I'm right, even when I'm sitting across from someone who's trying to make me feel wrong. Is to kind of push back a little bit, you know, advocate for myself, for lack of a better word, and uh, you know, I, I'm I'm sort of correlating two things, but one is you know now being accepted to a you know state university that is a huge bureaucracy that's very highly sought after. Um, you realize very quickly that nobody really, nobody wants to answer your questions. Nobody really cares. Their whole thing is, is like, figure it out for yourself. They're totally fine with you, like disappearing because there's a litany of other people who are happy to take your place. So again, that sort of competitive thing, like they just know that there is, they're in high demand and it doesn't really matter if you're unhappy. It doesn't really impact them. Um, I had this experience with my car recently. I, I I assume I brought this up on the podcast, but I've had this truck forever. I I, I got it. it's a two thousand. I got it in like uh, two thousand two, I believe, and so I've had this truck for twenty years now, and it's seen its fair share of trouble. Uh, it's a it's a Toyota. It's a great car. It's never really had any intrinsic problems, but i didn 't drive it for a year, and so uh, it it didn't run for a while it had to get I had to put some money in it to get it started up again um, It had a, a collision where someone struck the front of it uh, when it was parked um, and uh just a few weeks ago, my girlfriend and I had gone camping. We came back I dropped her off at her place I had to come here to do my, to, to my place to do some homework left it parked on the street uh went out to it the next day and saw that the entire uh, driver's side of the car had been, not destroyed, but mangled. Someone, it's hard to, it's hard to really know what happened, but it looks like someone just in, in the same direction of traffic that it was facing, just side swiped the car. Uh, the driver's side mirror was smashed. Um, the driver's side window was kind of mangled somehow. Uh, there were scratches along the side of the car the driver's side, uh, front tire was flat. Um, some damage to the, to the, to the, to the front bumper, so, in some ways, it, what it really looks like is someone actually crossed the oncoming lane of traffic and hit my car, so, who the fuck knows what happened, but, um, uh, it was in the shop for, like, three weeks, um, one of the things that was since wrong with the truck, and there's a lot wrong with the truck anyway, like, the AC doesn't work, so, it's an old truck, excuse me, um, sounds awesome, um, there are electrical things that are dying on the truck, which makes sense for a 20 year old car. But one thing that was working perfectly fine until the accident was the, um, the driver's side window. And as they were taking inventory, the person at the body shop told me, yeah, the, uh, the driver's side window doesn't work. Was that functioning before? And I said, yes, absolutely. So he submitted it along with the other things to the, uh, insurance, uh, insurance company and they denied, you know, they said that they would not be paying for that. So I had to get this guy on the phone and he was trying to say, well, you know, there's really no way to demonstrate that it was caused by the accident. And I said, well, let me tell you this. Um, The reason I know that it was fully functioning when I parked that vehicle is because my girlfriend and I went on a camping trip, which was two and a half hours away. The AC on the truck does not work. So when I drive, especially when it's warm and it's been warm out here, I have to have the window down. And so I can tell you, having gone on a two and a half hour drive, that up until the very moment that I parked that car and rolled the window up, it was functioning perfectly well. Um, And again, he tried to say, well, look, I've been in this business a long time. And it it, it certainly has been the case that, you know, electrical components malfunction around the time of an accident. I said, listen, man, I'm not saying that on a long enough timeline, the planets will align. And, and you know, I, I can't entirely disprove that the electrical mechanism failed, uh, it happened to be concurrent with the accident, but what is more reasonable? What would any reasonable piece, uh, reasonable person conclude? That it just happened coincidentally to stop working at the same time that it suffered a major collision? Or is it exactly what it seems like? It worked until, and up until the time I parked it, there was an accident on that side of the vehicle, the window that the switch was attached to has been damaged, You know, there's been major, dramatic vehicular damage around this switch. Is it more likely that someone struck the vehicle? And and I don't know how to explain it, but the electrical component just sort of failed. And again, this guy was acting like he was doing me a favor. But what I think about in those moments is it's, you know, it's conflict. It's confrontation. And you have to push back. And the hardest part about that is it's easy to talk about. You know, we picture ourselves in those types of situations and we think, oh, well, I, I would tell that person X, Y, and Z. But when you're actually in those arguments and you feel like your blood boil and your mouth gets dry, and, and I'm normally a person who, you know, I'm not saying I'm fucking William Shakespeare here, but I'm pretty well spoken. I'm able to think fast. I mean, especially as a crisis counselor, you have to be able to sort of find your words quickly in a time of crisis. And, you know, I'm pretty clear headed um, for the most part. but when you're in those moments, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to, uh, to find your words well. So even for someone like me, who's, I think, you know, kind of well put together, um, it's hard. So when I think about someone like my girlfriend, I mean, that's nearly an impossible situation for her to navigate, you know, because I'm not just saying you have to push back because there are ways that you can push back on people that are actually deleterious to your cause. You know, you can't just be overtly Adversarial. You can't start yelling and cursing. That's not going to get you what you want. It takes a certain amount of finesse. Maybe this is what I'm saying. You have a very strong emotional reaction. Your blood starts to boil. Your heart starts to race. You have this uh, strong sense of, uh, um, you know, uh, someone's treating you poorly. That's not, that's, I don't know, that's not the way I wanted to word it. But you feel this strong sense of injustice is taking place. And so you want to stand up for yourself and you want to chastise the person and you want to, um, you know, you want to be vindicated. And you always think that by just stating the truth, you're going to have some sway over this person. Um, but when they keep pushing back, of course, people get upset. They start saying, you know, fuck you. And they, you know, I don't know, they start to, I don't know, they want to slam the phone down or something like that. But you can't just screech and holler at that person. You have to, Sort of stand in your like um, moral rightness, right, and sort of sway the person with words. You have to stand your moral ground, not in a combative way, but you have to speak from a place of uh, certitude and confidence. And if you can maintain that in the face of uh, ridiculousness you do feel that you have some kind of moral sway over people. And I don't want to sound all woo-woo and of course take it back to Chinese philosophy, but I think something like this is what they talk about in Chinese philosophy with de, virtue. The It's sort of this ephemeral moral force that you can cultivate in yourself. Um, you know, the Tao Te Ching talks about like um, the superior man, like his virtue is like wind and the people are like grass and the wind blows over people and they're like they're bent by it, you know? Anyway, um, <laughs> very poetic. But um, I guess I, it reminds me of my time when I was working in food service, which is I used to be a fucking awful server. I was the piece of shit. And I know that there are times where people were just like, dude, who the fuck is this guy? Like, especially as an adult, when I have to interact with like younger people in in, in sort of customer service positions. And especially, I mean, this goes exactly back to college, you know, as I'm trying to navigate admissions or whatever, a lot of these sort of first contact positions, whether it's like the virtual front desk of an admissions office or whatever, are students, you know, maybe they have like a a work study or I don't know what it is, like part of their financial aid is they have to give so many hours to the admissions office or something like that. But they don't give a shit and they don't know what the fuck you're talking about, right? they have a very finite scope of understanding. And you experience this when you go to restaurants. All the time, you go to restaurants and you ask someone, you know, maybe you see some item on the menu, um, like a fiesta taco salad. And you'll say, hey, is uh, is that a fiesta taco salad, is that spicy? And you know the person doesn't know anything about the fucking food or the restaurant or has no answer to your question. When they they answer in the form of a question, where they say, um, I, 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 I wouldn't call it spicy. And you go, oh, this person has no idea what the fuck is going on. And we encounter this all the time. Like you'll walk into a fucking Best Buy and there's some 19 year old burnout who you say, Hey, do you guys have this router? And they go, oh no, we don't have that. And you're like, are you sure you don't want to check? I'm like, oh no, 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 I'm sure you could just walk over to the routers and then you'll see it. And it's like, this person was totally content with just telling, you no. And if I had taken their word for it, I would have just gone home. Meanwhile, the thing I wanted and could have given that company money for was two feet away from this person. And I know younger people hearing this, or I even think a lot of people my own age would, you know, just because no one wants to be called a Karen anymore, like feel embarrassed for me for sounding like a crotchety old man. But this is like, this is the right thing, right? Um you know, I'm not so uh, disillusioned that I think all 19-year-olds should like step up and give a shit about Best Buy. Part of the reason they don't care is because they're ultimately treated like shit. And and the work that we offer them is just like unfulfilling in general, right? So in some ways I'm not, uh, I'm not blaming people for feeling that way. And like I'm saying, I used to be that at restaurants. I didn't give a shit. People had a horrible experience on my watch all the time and it did not impact me. Although the real Jedi perspective is that it did impact me. You know, it's, and I didn't understand this till I was uh, older. About the time, and actually, there's a number of things happening here, but until I stopped working in restaurants, the last gig I had was for somebody who I deeply respected. He was a really good guy. He ran his restaurant really well. Um, he really took care of his employees. And so, there's a couple things happening here, right? Because I respected him, because he took care of me, I cared about his business. And, uh, you know, I I really saw how customer service and treating the regulars well was integral to him. And if I didn't do my job, he suffered and he was a family man and he had a life and yada, yada, yada. Not that he would have let that persist, which is the other part of it. When I walk into a business or a restaurant where I'm getting shitty service, especially on a consistent basis, what's really happening is that this person's being mismanaged. Right, the the entire establishment is is not managed well because if it was, someone would be supervising the people who are here and there'd be some kind of consequence for this type of behavior. Right. So the periods in my life when I've been able to maintain the shittiest behavior for the longest amount of time is when there was no oversight and wow, we're getting poignant. This happens in life too. Anyone who's able to maintain shitty behavior over a long period of time, especially young people, have shitty parents. Because good parents don't allow that stuff to go on, right? They stay vigilant. They supervise their kids. They correct their mistakes. Management is the same thing. Any place where there's like shitty services is ultimately mismanaged. That doesn't entirely recuse your, your responsibility to be a good employee, but but it is what it is. And where the fuck am I going with all this? Um, I was a shitty server. I, I don't know where I'm going with this ultimately, but I was saying right at the very end, I realized it was actually much harder for me to be a bad employee, psycho-spiritually, you know? If you're at a job that you hate and you do a shitty job at it, it actually compounds the suffering that you experience. It's not just a job that you hate. You sort of hate yourself for doing bad at it because on some level, when I encounter people who are shitty at their job, if you ever push back and kind of try to hold them accountable, they make you feel like there's something wrong with you, And that type of way of interacting with the world is not satisfying. It's a defense mechanism, but we're actually, we're like protecting ourselves from actually accepting the the, the reality that we're not like fulfilling our duty. And anytime you have a vested interest in like protecting yourself from the truth that actually calls you to be a better person, you're actually hurting yourself. And I don't just mean like you're being self-limiting. I think you actually make your life more miserable. I mean this is why all the time like pe- like people act confused like well why why do people continue in behavior that makes them unhappy uh, let's go back to thinking about being lazy when i <laughs> okay i've been watching or i should say i've been listening to a lot of judge judy um you know people upload this bootleg stuff to youtube all the time where it's judge judy and so as i'm doing homework i hear these cases in the background And, um, it was actually kind of funny because I was at my girlfriend's and we were kind of sitting around doing, she was doing, I was doing like, uh, I've, I've sort of gotten a head start on, on learning Chinese and like doing all these, you know, I've been writing out these Chinese, Chinese characters like hundreds of times, but she's like doing some work stuff. And as we're doing that, I just have Judge Judy on YouTube playing in the background and I have it, I have her computer facing me. So I'm seeing these people for the first time. I'm hearing some of the same cases and I'm sort of like, oh shit, when I heard this, that's not what I pictured that person being. But here's the point. You have people who are completely dedicated to living like losers, you know, they, their parents are losers, they live like losers, they date losers, they go to court over the pettiest shit, and they're just dedicated to like this miserable cycle of life. You know, they're on disability, they're not really disabled, you know, they receive social services, and it's like, they don't want to work because they're given a small amount of money for, for free. And even though they could make more money by working, that's work. That takes some effort. And from where they're at today, this is exponentially more comfortable. Um, I know it sounds like I'm being awful, but here's the point. From an outsider's perspective, you look at that person as lazy. But you have to think about people's motivational systems. That is miserable, right? Right? But the alternative, not that people articulate it this way, but the, the alternative to that is actually more frightening to that person. It's not that they're happy, right? People don't continue doing what they're doing because it makes them happy, but because the alternative is even more scary to them. Like when you think about people who are institutionalized, it's not that people just are committed to a life of crime and that they're satisfied by it or that's how they want to live. It's that the idea, you know, for someone who's a career criminal, that's just the life that they know. That's what they're habituated to. It makes them miserable. But the idea of like putting on a business suit and sitting down for an interview that they might be rejected for because of their criminal history, psycho, psychologically is more terrifying for them than just like living in a prison under the threat of the, the constant threat of like physical and sexual violence. That's fucking heavy shit, man. So you have this weird dichotomy. Like when you speak with criminals, they'll say, all I want to do is like, you know, get back on my feet. And I'm, I'm, I'm not saying on some level that they don't, but I'm, I'm talking about the disparateness between what, what people claim that they want and what their behavior suggests, right? So to tie it all together, <laughs> when you go to a restaurant, and I'm, I'm speaking from my own experience, people who do those jobs in a shitty way, their behavior suggests that they think that they're too good for this job. You know, when I worked in restaurants, I had a lot of resentment because I thought I was too good for that work. Like, I was upset that I was here when clearly I was destined for so much more. And it's not that I wasn't capable of more. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what are you doing to actually make that a reality? Because I think as there's a lot in life that's unfair, but in some ways life is a lot more fair than we think it is. I mean, let's just crunch the numbers. I was working at a restaurant and I was doing a shitty job at it. So clearly I'm not too good for it. Right. If I was too good for it, one, I wouldn't be doing it anyway. Right. Like when someone who's like fully confident and capable looks at the job market, like they're not going to work at a restaurant. They're going to look at places that actually they're qualified to work at. I think on some level, I knew that that's what I was capable of doing and barely that at the time. Um, but it was accomplishing something else for me, which is what I was capable of doing at that time. Like when you work at a restaurant, you just have a social circle and you get to drink and you have like money in your pocket. You don't really have to worry about the future. You know, you're just kind of stuck in this lifestyle. And that's where I was. And even though it wasn't making me happy, it's what I was doing. It was, it was protecting me from having to do the work of what it would take to change my life for a long time. I mean, I think about where I'm at now i know I'm jumping around here a lot, but you know now that I've been accepted to a you know a university of of some prestige and and you know when I think about the possibility of you know spending the next two years studying literature or learning Chinese or maybe even doing a study abroad, which is something I'm thinking about in the future, you know I'm light years away from where I was a decade ago and When I even think back to like when I was living in Arizona, when I was like 19 and like depressed and like feeling like I was, you know, I was, I don't think I was drinking a lot of that time, but I was, I was smoking like two and a half packs of cigarettes a day. I was depressed. I wasn't leaving my apartment. I think in my mind, when I thought about like what I thought I was capable of and what I wanted to accomplish in my life and what it would take to get me there, I remember thinking the task is too great You know, when I really had these moments of clarity and thought, even about something like music, you know, forget school, but I thought, I looked at everything that was wrong in my life and I thought, I'm a horrible student, I don't take care of myself, my health is horrible, I'm smoking cigarettes, eventually it would be like drinking, but it was like, I'm depressed, there are traumas in my life that are unaddressed that I know are controlling my life, but I can't face them. Um... And that permeated every aspect of my life. I mean, school, work, romantic. And I just saw this like laundry list of things that if I was going to get to where I wanted to go, I would have to work through all these things. And the task of that was just so monumentally huge. It was just easier to stay where I was at. You know, and that's all unseen to other people. But that's what I was really up against. You know, and when I look back on my life, you know, I'm not saying that all those issues are resolved or that even that you're capable of resolving them, but it has taken about as long as I thought it would, if not honestly longer, to get to a place where I can even begin to make the type of progress or, or, you know, even begin to occupy a place in my life, something like what I wanted for myself, 15 years ago. Um, You know, in some ways the task was harder and it was also as hard as I imagined it would be. Um, You know, if you had told me my first day of therapy that 10 years from now I would still be talking about the same things, uh, I probably would have given up. Um, But where am I going with all this? I feel like I've said a lot and I'm not sure I'm really arriving at a point. we sort of began with me like talking shit about people who are announcing to me they have all these problems. I don't know. We're in a difficult time. And, um, I think a lot of people expect one to default to a place of sympathy. And I think I am sympathetic, but I guess I'm also like, I'm also aware that people like take advantage, (laughs) people take advantage of that, you know, especially as a student, people take advantage of the fact that we're in a pandemic, you know, uh, I guess the other part, too, is that people who always announce that they have troubles are are not people who were formally well-established anyway. Like, these were people who you already found suspect or were not very enthused with or or found to be kind of not dependable, etc. And these are the people, when the deadlines are due, all of a sudden they have problems. They have a remote grandparent who passed away. And I'm not saying that these things don't happen. I'm just saying it's also not a coincidence, I don't think, that these are the people who are not the most reliable people. Like, if there are certain people who came forward and said, oh my god, this thing happened, it kept me from fulfilling this obligation, I may not be happy about it, but that really sounds exceptional, right? I've observed this person's behavior, Um, but it's almost like, and and this, this is the part, as judgmental as I sound about it, I feel like I deeply relate to, which is, I don't think people see or know how transparent they are. Or I think people go through their life and they, feed, because they're not getting a lot of feedback in certain areas, they think that they're unobserved. But it's like your boss or your manager or your teacher may never, and this is the scary part about adulthood, folks, <laughs> just because you're not getting feedback on something doesn't mean it's okay. You know, in some ways, it could be our individual individualistic culture. It could be that, you know, open conflict is actually not encouraged. In our culture. But there are people who are responsible for like making important decisions about you who know exactly who you are. And just because you're not getting feedback on something doesn't mean that it's not registering for someone else. You know, people don't have the time or the energy to to really care about your personal development to that extent. You know what I mean? I mean, I look at my life and I guess I was always, you know, you negotiate with yourself. Like you think, oh, if I was doing bad, like people would tell me. It's like, people are fine to see you just kind of suffer. And like, you know, um, I'm trying to stay away from self-defeating because it's such a cliche. I've been thinking more along the lines of like being self-limiting. Like people don't need you to fulfill your potential. Like they don't have a vested interest in that. Like when I look back on my life, well, uh, here's what I'm trying to say. I look at where I'm at now, you know, that I've gotten straight A's at community college. I've gotten accepted into a very, a very good university. Um, these are all things I should have done 15 years ago that I was capable of doing then. But, you know, I'm not trying to say what was me. I'm just saying, you know, part of growing up is realizing, like, You know, when you're younger and you sort of parentalize, I mean, you should have parents who sort of help you fulfill your potential, but it passed a certain point, like teachers, bosses, they don't really care about you fulfilling your potential. You know? And, uh, yeah, I don't know where I'm going with all this, except you kind of have to police yourself. And who knows? Maybe they are. You know, I I guess uh, if I want to be fair, you know, I'm only seeing people at a finite point in their life. I'm just seeing their life through a keyhole. I'm seeing one chapter of their life, right? Like there are people who saw me when I was a student when I was younger or former bosses who if they had to guess what my life looked like based on that finite experience of me would say things weren't going well. Um And I guess conversely, maybe there are some people who encounter me now who, oh, a very strong student or this or that, or this person's very X, Y, Z. They don't know where you come from. You know, they don't know what you've experienced, you know? I feel my brain starts shutting down every time I start to, you know, I feel like I start to get a little self-congratulatory or something, but I don't know this that this puts a period at the point of everything I was saying, but I guess, you know, at this moment in my life, I'm looking back on my performance as a student and even reflecting in my job, you know, who I, a place I started off as a volunteer and joined the staff and have been a supervisor for a while and then have had some added responsibilities for the last year where I'm leading training and facilitating training and, hiring people, you know, sort of a leadership type position where, you know, I just feel really, uh, you know, not that this, not that all my dreams have been uh, fulfilled, but you know, it's just put a lot of, you know, it's, 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 it's motivating. Excuse me. It shows me that you know, when I put my mind to something and I let myself do something that I really want, I actually perform really well at it. I mean, hell, you know, I'm sure things will get very difficult very quickly, but, you know, in in anticipation of taking intensive Chinese this summer, which I'm doing, I registered for my first classes. So I am doing a year's worth of Chinese in 12 weeks. Um, which is going to be very challenging. But in anticipation of that, I bought this book. It's called Classical Chinese for Everyone. And it's not modern Mandarin like I'll be like I'll be learning um uh in class, but really my interest is not really in speaking the language. It's in uh reading literary Chinese, reading like the classics, reading Confucius, reading Chinese philosophy in the original. That's really my area of interest. So, I started reading through this book. I've learned like 20 characters so far. Um but it's I really enjoy it and it's not it's enjoyable. You know, I was it's not that it's not hard, it's just different. You know, it's a different way of thinking about language and it's a, you know, it's it's not a phonetic language. So, you know, it's not like, you know, if you're semi-familiar with romance languages, you can like read Italian and if you know Spanish, you can like connect some words. Chinese is completely different, right? It's not if the, the character that you're reading has nothing to do with how it sounds. Um and so it's very very different but you know even just working through a couple of lessons where you're like, "Oh, holy shit, like I'm reading some Chinese. Hey, I'm able to draw characters. I have this app where I make flashcards and I you think, "Holy shit, like I'm learning it." And a couple of years ago, I would have told myself that I couldn't, like, "Oh, it's too hard." You know, I was lamenting to my therapist. I said, "Now that I'm actually going to be spending the next 2 years you know, pursuing a humanities topic, I fucking promise you if I had started off knowing I was going to go into comparative literature or um, uh, East Asian religion, thought, and culture, there's no fucking way I needed two semesters of chemistry. There's no fucking way I needed to take fucking calculus, right? So a lot of the classes I've ended up taking have been superfluous because of how I'm going to be spending the next two years. But in some way, you know, it's one of these like, you don't get what you want, but you get what you need. I think, I think in some ways, having taken those classes and done well at them, probably convinced me that I probably could learn Chinese, you know, it's like, even now I'm taking calculus and I'm like seeing the lecture, which I see later, you know, she records the lecture. I'm not able to make it because of work, but I'm able to watch the lecture later and I'm seeing mistakes in the lecture, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, if I, I kind of do understand this stuff you know, if I'm able to spot those mistakes and, you know, to be performing well in the class, um, I think, or, or even chemistry, you know, having done well in two semesters of chemistry, I think it was my performance in those classes that probably convinced me of like, Hey man, if you can learn calculus, you can fucking learn Chinese, right? It's that confidence to think, well, other people learn the fucking language. What's so, what's, what do other people have that I don't? Not that I'm the smartest person in the world, but I just mean in terms of your capacity, right? What really, if you had to identify it, what separates you from other cracker-ass crackers who have learned Chinese or the other white people like who have published translations of Confucius or whoever that you've read? You know, you look at the, um, I don't know, I almost said the name of the school I'm going to. Not that it really fucking matters, but you look at the staff in the Chinese department. They're half Chinese, half white And you just think, why am I any different from that fucking white dude who holds a prestigious office in in Chinese studies or whatever? Why can't I learn the language? I'm not going to learn it overnight, but maybe I could. You know, and I was sitting across from an advisor who was talking about what my time at this university would look like, given the area I want to study, and was even saying, well, you know, a lot of students, you know, you'll probably do this in the fall and spring, and the next year you'll do X and Y, and then, hey, if you are going to double major, you know, you'll, are, you'll already have an added semester, and then maybe you want to do a study abroad, and I was like, oh, shit. Like, maybe I do want to do a study abroad. And I was, a lo- I was, like, looking at the study abroad website, and I was like, damn, dude, what about spending a school year in China? Like, wow, that sounds fucking nuts. I mean, for someone who, like, I mean, when I first moved out to the Bay Area, we've we've sort of talked around this, but like, I couldn't even leave my apartment after like six months. I had like a full implosion of my mental health. I had to like muster the courage, like walk across the street to the 7-Eleven, you know, or to go to the grocery store that was a block away, like spending a year in China. Like, wow, that would be fucking crazy. I mean, especially as you get older, you know, I think about even moving out to California. Like that was a, that was a decision. That's a pretty serious decision that was made very, very quickly, um, that I look back on and I think I, as an adult, you don't make decisions like that. Like you're pretty content in your schedule, you know, uh, uprooting your life and moving to another place is just a, a huge undertaking. Whereas when you're young, you make these types of decisions, like without any thought. You know, the idea of spending a year in China seems fucking nuts, no matter what you're studying. You know, you don't even necessarily have to be fluent in the language. I think... I think... I think in Hong Kong, or maybe Shanghai. I don't know. One of these cities, like, you know, obviously people speak... um, Chinese, but I think English might also be one of the national languages. Anyway, the point is, um, it's just crazy to, to, to be thinking about that, right? Um, not that it's set in stone or that it's going to happen, but it just, it just says a lot to me about where my mind is at and how, I don't know, different things are now than they have been at other times in my life, for lack of a better word. yeah, I have been thinking about my time when I was going to junior college in Tucson studying music. I, uh, I've been in touch with a friend we mentioned here uh, on the podcast a couple of times. Um, you know, when I didn't do an episode, he reached out to me and I've said, he's, you know, he's been such a supporter of the podcast and all that stuff that, uh, he, he's, uh, almost certainly our perspective, uh, podcast MVP for the next year, whenever that rolls around, if we're still doing this. But, um, But it's funny, I've mentioned that I was uh, listening to, I've been listening to a lot of Bela Bartok. I mean, a lot of Bela Bartok. And in some ways, I mean, I know I spent a year listening to Brahms and and a year listening to Beethoven, but there's something about Bartok which, excuse me, even though his, I mean, his music occupies this really cool place where it's, you know, it's classical music, and I'm doing that in quotation marks, it's classical music, but it's so much cooler than a lot of other music, you know? Like, it's modern 20th century classical music, but, you know, I don't want to sound all bookish and stuff, but it's like you have, like, Schoenberg and 12-tone and, and serialism, and you have that school, you know, of Webern and, and, and Berg and those people. And even though I think Berg is great, like, Wozzeck is phenomenal, um, it's not really listenable music, right? It's very grating. Even someone like Messiaen, who I really, I really, really enjoy, you can only handle that music in finite amounts, um... Not that Messian did serialism, but um there's a lot of twentieth century music that's just very grating. Bartok is super cool because it's very new and strange and chromatic and um but it's not serialism. You know, he was able to sort of occupy this really great space between like you know I don't know, sort of traditional harmonic language and uh and also doing cool, kind of strange things where he so he sounds very modern but there's this piece of music that has like really stuck with me. And it's, it's called Music for Strings, Percussion, and Celeste. And uh, it's four movements. The first movement is almost entirely scored for strings. And it's like, you have these four phrases. It's like, it starts in like a stretto or like a, like a canon. Like in a canon, you have one voice sings a, a theme or a melody and then after it finishes, the second voice comes in and sings the same melody while the first voice sort of harmonizes over it. Then when the second voice finishes, the third voice comes in and states the same theme while the other two harmonize over it. And then the fourth voice comes in and sings this theme while the others harmonize over it. And, um, you have this in the first, uh, movement of, uh, of this Bartok piece. And, um, I, I don't know, I, I don't need to get all technical, but it's like, it first comes in in sort of one key, and then it moves through the circle of fifths, and, you know, the, uh, the voices come in in other, uh, you know, keys, for lack of a better word, or different modes, or whatever, um, but uh, then the second movement comes in, and, and you, all of a sudden, I'm listening to this, you know, and I'm hearing it, I've probably listened to it like seven times since then, but, and I go, oh shit, this is the music from Being John Malkovich, you know, the sort of dance of despair, whatever the puppet dance he does. It's uh, You can hear how they sort of edit it together, right? Because they, they use this music cue to fill a, a much smaller space of time than the actual length of the movement. So, it's kind of cut up a little bit. But you go, oh, shit. Like, I don't know. You, you feel like two things come together. Like, oh, being John Malkovich, a very important formative movie in my life. And of course, they use this music. This music is like touching me on some psycho-spiritual level. And of course, it was you know, it touched this person who was also very formative and influential to me as well. You know, you feel like somehow the the dots are connecting, and then you hear the third movement, and you're like, "Wait a minute! This is the fucking music from The Shining." You know that music cue. I think it's like where Jack Nicholson is like looking out the window, like when you first. Well, first, a thought on The Shining. The Shining is not a great movie, even though it's a classic of film. You know, I'm not saying it's not a classic, but when you really watch that movie, it doesn't feel, like, justified. And and Jack Nicholson's performance is just kind of, like, arbitrary, you know? Like, when you watch the movie, not enough creepy things happen, you know, other than, like, the young kid, like, seeing the, the girls in the hallway. There's no real sense of why Jack Nicholson starts to go crazy. Like, he's just kind of fine, and then he's just, like, staring out a window looking nuts, and you're like, what the fuck's going on? They don't really develop this idea that, like, you know, he becomes, like, beholden to the hotel, and, like, it just, it's just a very undeveloped sort of fucking thing. It just kind of looks cool and, you know, has some famous scenes, so that's why we talk about it and remember it and shit, but it doesn't really hold up as, like, a very, like, convincing, like, character arc type of movie. Um, but anyway, this sort of, like, hairpin turn moment in The Shining, where Jack is just, like, staring out the window, and you're like, oh, this guy's fucking nuts now! that's the music cue they use from movement three of, uh, music for strings, percussion, and Celeste by Bartok. And then the fourth movement is like a sort of typical Bartokian, like, you know, uh, Hungarian, like dance kind of thing. So fourth movement is probably the least fulfilling, but, um, but, uh, where am I going with that? Oh, this is the whole fucking reason I brought this up. So as I'm listening to this piece of music and I'm sort of thinking about it, and uh, I go look at the Wikipedia page, because as I'm thinking about this, and I'm, you know, I did this with the, uh, I was telling everyone to listen to um, uh, the Bartok Rhapsody for violin and piano, and then compare that with the violin sonatas, and just see, like, that's kind of the range of Bartok. He's both very, like, singable, and, like, beautiful, and just, like, you know, kind of what you'd expect. And then i will have, like, the Violins. so he has, like, the violin Rhapsodies, which are, like, you know, sort of just, like, very fulfilling, nice Easy listening, sort of like, you know, pretty purely enjoyable concert music, and then you hear the violin sonatas, and they're fucking out there, like they're just fucking out in the fucking who the fuck knows where. They're just they're just something else entirely. Um, But I spent some time with the rhapsodies, like with the first one, like looking at the form and kind of like labeling it and yada yada yada. And so as I'm listening to music for strings, percussion, and celeste, and I'm starting to like, you know, I'm looking at the score and I'm like saying, "Oh, you have these voices," and they're kind of, but I'm I'm kind of like at the fringe of my understanding right? So, I think, I wonder if the Wikipedia article has anything about the form, like the structure of this piece. And I can't remember what the Wikipedia article says, but if you go to the reference section, or the external links, actually, someone has cited uh, an ex, it's called, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Oh, not mirror. Symmetry. Symmetry is a form of musical determinism, or something like that. Which is from the website of a music theory professor named Larry Solomon, who was my theory teacher when I was going to Pima Community College in Tucson, Arizona. I had a couple semesters with him. Very brilliant guy. He hated his job, or you could just tell he was kind of fucking burnt out. You know, he was a very brilliant guy who was, you know, just very brilliant in terms of theory. Very big 20th century guy, which is actually a very lucky thing for me to have, like, at that age Um, he was very much into Wozzeck, which is the only reason I was ever tipped off to that opera. But we looked at like Dusse Rheingold. Actually, I take that back. That was with another theory teacher. But she adopted that from his curriculum. Like you start with the Bach chorales and there's diatonic harmony and then you have chromatic theory and then you go on to, uh, I forget what the third semester is. Whatever. Oh, counterpoint. And then you have like 20th century music theory, but, um, just a very brilliant guy. And I remember he retired around the time about halfway through my time there And I've actually since thought about it because I remember sitting in his office one day and asking him like, oh, you're retiring. So what are your plans? He said, well, I'll I'll probably still teach. I'll probably still teach like adult classes. And I was like, oh, why? And he was like, well, they're just, they've always been my best students, you know? And I didn't really know what that meant at the time, but I filed it away. Now that I'm an adult student, I realize, oh yeah, adult students know exactly what they want. They take the class seriously. They do the work. They're not like these fucking Hesher burnouts at these other junior colleges that like take music theory but they really don't want to learn it. They want to like buck the system. You know like they're all in these fucking bands that are like, "Hey, man, I'm in this band and we're we're like Tool, but we're like way more experimental." You know? And it's like they don't know shit about music theory, but like they they just kind of wanna know it but like don't really want to learn. It. Like everyone's just kind of a fucking like dumb, like everyone's just kind of dumb dumb and I'm one of them. By the way, I was taking that fucking class It's, like I never did the work. Um but it was crazy to me to like go, oh shit, like that's my teacher. And I was looking at his website, which I used to look at all the time. But anyway, he has this really brilliant like breakdown of music for strings, percussion, and Celeste. And it goes into the theory and all that stuff. But I just like kind of went down the rabbit hole of like looking at his archived website. I, I'm pretty sure he's since passed away. Davis, the listener, my my buddy who I used to go to class with, who's got this whole fucking tirade going. Uh, he can confirm that with me. But um but uh he was just a brilliant dude and uh i you know i sort of i sort of put him alongside my latin teachers which are people that i look back on and think i was really lucky to have had them and i just wish i was in a better place in my life to really absorb everything that they had you know i look i look toward my time like at the college i'm going to and knowing that i'm going to be studying things that really interest me i really hope that i make an effort not to brown those, but like to ingratiate myself with those teachers and really use that, t- the time that I have with them wisely, you know, to really be a student of theirs and not just kind of like, you know, cause I look at that time with Larry Solomon, my former theory teacher. And I just think, I just wish I had been a better student, <laughs> you know, that could have been somebody that could have been a resource for me, you know, whereas now I look back on my time with that person and it just feels a bit like a, you know, like a squandered opportunity you know, I look back on that kid I wasn't and I think, oh, you were a bright kid and you had some talent. And that's kind of what I traded on. You know, whereas this dude Davis, who I've talked about, and I think I've said this in other episodes as well, but, you know, Davis was just a diligent worker and uh great guy and very talented and, uh, you know, went on to get his degree. And, and like, you know, I think he even taught like high school concert band or something like that. But like, you know, Davis knows his shit, you know, and he's played with a lot of cool bands and he's pursued, pursued music. And, uh, you know, for so long, I was just kind of lost, you know, and it's taken me a long time to even, and I still don't think I've caught up with Davis, but I, you know, I've had to spend a lot of different chapters of my life, like revisiting those things that if I had just been present for at the time (laughs) I could have carried with me through life, you know, and I've always seen Davis that way as like, I wish I would have had the wherewithal that he had at the time. And it's probably because, you know, you know, I've looked at my life and I think, especially with like the privilege that I had, I think that's been great and that it's been a great cushion for me. But I also think it takes a little bit of the, what's the word I'm looking for? The, I, I can't think of the words. the necessity, you know what I mean? it takes the edge off. You know, you're just kind of soft, you know? Like, I've sort of gone back and talked about, you know, all the people I know who continue to pursue music as a profession well into their, yeah. I would say their 30s, period. I was going to say their mid-30s, but their 30s at all are usually people who come from a greater amount of privilege. And I'm not talking about the people who, like, pursue music as, like, um a music teacher or, um, a professor or even private instruction, but like people, like people who pursue performing original music, you are know, like, Oh, I'm going to be, I'm going to be a songwriter. Like I'm going to be signed to a label or I'm going to tour. or I'm going to do this. Like all those people I know who continue to pursue that in their thirties are, are phenomenally privileged. And I think it's because on some level, they know if it really doesn't work out, which it probably won't, they'll still have something to fall back on. They could always go to their parents or there's some kind of inheritance waiting for them or whatever the case may be. Um, and that's not the end of the world. Like if this is really what you want to do and you have the, you truly have the ability to do that because you have something to fall back on, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, that, that's, it's, it's called a privilege for a reason. It's something that you have that you can leverage, um, to pursue what you want. And that's a gift and it's a privilege and and that's totally fine. Um, but I just, it's also true that if, if, You know, if you are in college and you're needing, you're really needing this to be your meal ticket to a career, you're very focused, right? And so it's taking me a lot longer to develop that because I probably haven't had to figure it out. So anyway, I've been kind of self-congratulatory this episode, so maybe it's nice to end on a self-deprecating note. So uh, Davis, thanks for being you. Thanks for being a listener of the podcast. Um, Thanks for staying in touch and continuing to support me. Um, It's meant a lot in my life. And, uh, I appreciate the kind words you've had for me over the years. Um, but you're a great guy and you're valued and, um, you know, don't change. Keep being you. You are a success, sir. Uh, for everyone else, thanks for listening to the podcast. Sorry I wasn't here last week, but hey, I'm sure you have plenty of other things to fill your time with. Um, but, uh, I, I do regret not fulfilling my commitment and it's not the end of the world, right? Out of a hundred episodes, we had one late one and then you know, there's no, no way around it. We missed an episode. That's okay. It'll just add on to our time together. Uh, we'll still do the same number of episodes. So, thank you for listening to this episode. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you can on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Take a minute, rate and review us. Give us five stars. Type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast. Why would other people like it? Let them know. Um, you know, find your favorite episode. It sounds like someone's shooting a fucking gun outside my window, by the way. I don't know if you can hear that. You hear that? of course, as soon as I stop talking, the the pop stop. But anyway, uh, and also the video podcast, which you can find on thisismpod.com. That's thisismpod.com. You'll find the latest episode posted there. You can watch the video on our website or click through to the YouTube channel. Subscribe. All those good things. That's it, folks. We will be back next week. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening and ciao for now.